Well, we're, we're, uh, if we haven't met, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, too, with, with Pastor Sam. And we're in the midst of a series taking us through the book of Acts called The Gospel in Motion. And um, Acts was written by Luke. Uh, Luke was a doctor. He wasn't an apostle, interestingly. Uh, he didn't uh, experience the stories he tells in his gospel firsthand. He said that he went and researched everything and wrote an orderly account is the way that he describes it. And uh, history has shown that Luke was quite an accurate uh, historian in his record of detail. He wrote the book of Acts also. And these two books go together, Luke and Acts. Luke is the account of what Jesus did on earth in person. And Acts is the account of what the Lord continued to do on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his followers. The Holy Spirit put the gospel in motion to begin with. And the Holy Spirit continues to put the gospel in motion in our day. And that's true for, for us, for you and me. I mean, our, our part in this is, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, to go on being filled by the Spirit. It's, that's an ongoing activity, much like you turn your windshield wipers on your car. They don't just swipe one time. They keep going because they need to keep going. That's the force of the verb that Paul uses. Go on being filled by the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at the story of how the first deacons came about. Uh, The church chose seven leaders to serve in this way based on an issue that had arisen in the church. One of those deacons was named Stephen. Another was named Philip. Stephen became the first martyr of the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7. We're picking up in Acts chapter 8, and our passage begins on the very day Stephen was killed. So let's listen to the scripture now. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And Saul began to destroy the church, Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian, eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, 
Tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen and Leah. So you have to kind of imagine your way back into the experience, what was happening in Jerusalem after Jesus was killed. Uh, The tension had been simmering in the city since the crucifixion. And after Pentecost, when God poured out the Spirit on the early church and those first believers were emboldened to go out and, and start telling the good news of Jesus, it was like the burner was cranked up to high. It went from simmer to boiling very quickly. And it, it was clear that at some point it would boil over. Something would happen. Um, it, it, you know, in the first uh, seven chapters of Acts so far, we've seen uh, the apostles Peter and John brought before the Sanhedrin to appear. The Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, had heard that they were preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead and calling people to faith in him. So they called in Peter and John and said, hey, you can't do that. You've got to stop that, which they didn't, of course. Uh, then the Sanhedrin had all of the apostles arrested. And when they were in the jail on the first night, says the scripture, an angel of the Lord unlocked the cell door and, and said, he didn't say, hey, flee, run for your lives. The angel said, go to the temple courts and proclaim this new life that you've received. It's interesting. Then, of course, Stephen, one of the first deacons called to help with the daily distribution of, of food, was preaching in the name of Jesus, called before the Sanhedrin, and he confronted them full on. So much so that stuff boiled over. That was the point. When the, the top blew off the pot, the Sanhedrin had had enough of this Jesus stuff. They had Stephen stoned to death, killed, executed. And that began what was a larger persecution of the church. And really, the Sanhedrin and their agents began going after Christians wherever they were. And the result was that Christians fled Jerusalem because of this great persecution. We see that in verse 1 all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Jerusalem was in Judea, right? So they scattered to the countryside around Jerusalem and Samaria was the neighboring kind of place, the arch enemies, really. And then also in this scripture, we get another mention of Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul. Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. Imagine that, knocking on every door. From house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. John Stott comments, Saul, not only, not only did Saul not spare the women, he did not stop short of seeking and securing his victim's death. The apostle Paul would later admit to this, 
uh, later in, in the book of Acts that he was responsible for the deaths of many Christians. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. What, what Luke is doing in the setup to this passage, he's describing a chain of cause and effect. You see, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen began a great persecution of the church. That, that persecution caused a great scattering of the church. The scripture says all the Christians except for the apostles got out of Jerusalem. And the great scattering caused widespread evangelism because where these people went, they couldn't help but talk about what had happened. That they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and there was this entirely new life available in him. Now the reason the scattering caused this, this wider sharing of the good news of Jesus was this, verse 4, because those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It, it's really the first illustration that we have in the New Testament of the gathered and the scattered church, which would go on to be a primary principle that when the church gathers together for corporate worship, that's one expression of the church, and when the church scatters out to wherever we are, that's another expression of the church. And when the church was scattered here the first time, the word went out because the believers carried it with them and they took the good news of Jesus wherever they went. Now, this threefold kind of cause and effect is the background to the story of Philip. Philip, not an apostle, again, he was one of the first seven deacons chosen by the church, and as such, he shared that responsibility of the daily distribution of food, kind of the Meals, meals on Wheels program. That was his area of primary leadership. Uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, met Philip in person. We know that because that's recorded in the scriptures in the book of Acts. So it's very likely that Luke heard these stories from Philip in person. Luke accompanied Paul on one of his missionary journeys and on their way back home, back to Jerusalem, they stayed at Philip's house in Caesarea. Look at Acts 21. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. That's one of the seven original deacons. So you can just imagine it, can't you? They're sitting at, at Philip's house and, and Luke said, man, I've heard so much about you. Would, would you tell me the stories? Why do they call you the evangelist? And Philip began regaling him with stories of things the Lord had done from the very beginning when, when Stephen was killed. And the first story went like this. When the persecution broke out, Philip left Jerusalem but he chose a very interesting destination. He went to Samaria, of all places. If you're less familiar with the background on the Bible, Jewish people detested Samaritan people. And there's a long history here, but the, the big separation came in the fourth century BC when the Samaritans said, I... now it wasn't the Old Testament then, it was just the Jewish scripture, but they said, yeah, we're, we're done with all of the scripture except for the first five books. The books of Moses, we like those, but we're not going with the rest. And by the way, we're going to build our own temple on Mount Gerizim to compete with the one in Jerusalem. Well, there was this huge divide. So for Jewish people, this was anathema, right? Like they couldn't believe the, the heretical move that the Samaritans were making here. It's all important background to a couple other Bible stories. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan the guy who helped 
uh, the man who had been injured on the road, waylaid by robbers. You know, Jewish people didn't think there was such a thing as a good Samaritan. Like, that's a contradiction in terms. And then also, the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus met her. So that's all important background for those two stories. So Samaria, if you have to flee Jerusalem, why go there? You see, Philip had heard what Jesus told the apostles just prior to his ascension. He told them this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when you and I read that, we just think, oh, these are different geographical places. But you got to put yourself in the place of the hearer One of the the apostles would have heard that Jesus is telling them this in person. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Home base here. Makes sense. Judea. Okay, we're good with that. And Samaria. What? We're going to be witnesses to them? But see, after the Spirit fell on them, they they understood. we're, We're all in. Jesus is the world's only savior. And this is a message for the world. So Peter, or Philip said, hey, I'm going to Samaria, the least likely of all places. You see, Philip was a disciple ready to lay down his life to reach the last, the least, and the lost. In going to Samaria, he was making an intentional decision to go to the last and the least, at least as culturally defined by the Jewish culture, right? Because they definitely would have thought of Samaritans as the last and the least. But there's Philip in a Samaritan town. He shared publicly in, uh, to crowds of people. There were m- miraculous signs that accompanied his sharing, says the scripture. Many people were healed, says the Bible. Many people came to faith in Jesus. And the text concludes with this wonderful statement. There was great joy in that city. Great joy. God was no longer an idea, a religious idea. They had met God. And they knew. They knew God was real. There was great joy in that city. The the next story is Philip sharing with the Ethiopian eunuch. This is an example of the Spirit leading Philip to share with a person who was lost. This This guy was a person of position, a high-ranking official in Ethiopia, probably a Jewish convert who had been on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. Unlike the Samaritans, he recognized all of the Jewish scripture. He was reading the prophet Isaiah as he was sitting in his chariot. The Samaritans would have ditched the prophets, right? They just stuck with the books of Moses. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, I've always been interested in knowing how, how did Philip experience that? Did he hear those words? Was it like a verbal thing he heard in his mind? Was it more of a prompting, a kind of sense in his heart? Uh, I don't know what Philip experienced. But I do know the Holy Spirit really does stuff like that. Because that has happened to me. I was two years into my Christian faith. 
I was living at a resort up in Elk Rapids, wonderful place on, on Elk Lake, and I so remember this. I was, um, I, uh, my quick story is I came to Christ as a senior in college. I had a business degree, but instead of pursuing a job in Chicago, I went to be the business manager at this small resort up in northern Michigan. And by business manager, that meant handyman and groundskeeper. <laughs> so in the off-season, I raked a lot of leaves, I fixed stuff, learned to fix stuff. Uh, so I had spent the day doing that. I came home, was exhausted, was, uh, I made dinner, ate dinner, sat down to watch the news, and I just had such a, an overwhelming sense of prompting that I was supposed to get up out of my place, walk over to one of our condominium units, we had about 40 of them, one of them was owned by a couple I knew. I'll call them Steve and Sally. That's not their real names. But I'm sitting there, I have the TV on, and very clearly this prompting was, John, you need to go share the good news of Jesus with Steve and Sally. Lord, it's dark. It's nighttime in northern Michigan. I'm tired. This is crazy, by the way, and I'm not going to do that. Turn the TV back on. And it was just a pressing feeling to the point where I knew there was no getting away from this. And I was confronted with a very clear choice. I could go over there and do that, which I did not want to do. I was terribly uncomfortable sitting in my living room. So I could either do that or know in my heart that I was going to disobey something I was experiencing as a clear directive from the Lord. So what do you do? I wrestled with it for about half an hour and finally said, Okay, I give. I'm going. So I walked over to Steve and Sally's condo, kind of knocked on their door, and they're like, well, hey, John. We knew each other very well. Like, hey, can I, can I come in? Can I, can I just share some stuff with you? It was very awkward. I kind of got into it saying something like, hey, you guys know I, I became a follower of Jesus not too long ago and basically shared the gospel the best I could with them right then. I so remember it. Sally's face, big smile, warm. She was tracking with me the entire time. Steve's face, he's kind of looking at me like I'm crazy, like my worst fear was being realized, right? So we, we finished, and we're like, hey, thanks, John. We love you. Thanks for coming over. I actually asked them if they were interested in coming to faith and putting their faith in Jesus, and they, they didn't want to do that that night. Um, and I've always wondered why the Lord did that. I haven't experienced anything that profound since then, but turns out the next summer, we, on staff there at the lodge, we learned that Steve had left his wife, Sally, for another woman with an affair that had been going on a number of months. I don't know. I've always wondered if the Lord kind of gave me the shoulder tap just because I happened to be the closest Christ follower and said, hey, I love, I love Steve so much, I want to give him an opportunity to choose a different path than he's about to choose. That's going to wreck his life, his wife's life, the life of his daughters. I don't know, but I wonder, right? Now, lest you think this is a heroic pastor story, I wasn't a pastor. I was a groundskeeper. I had no training, no seminary background, nothing like that. Um, my understanding of the scripture is that the mission of God in this world belongs to the people of God, not religious professionals. To every follower of Jesus, 
that, that God wants to use us in this world, in the lives of other people. Disciples making disciples. That's not church leaders making disciples so they can feel more comfortable in their spiritual life. This is followers of Jesus telling the good news wherever they go and helping people grow in maturity, Christ-like maturity. See, the Lord Jesus directed Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch by a prompting of the Spirit. And the Spirit continues to do that to this day, right now. Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch where he was and explained to him the scripture he was reading. We get that from the passage. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is the work that all of us are called to do. We, we are all to be like that scattered church. Now, when we scatter in our day from this place, wherever we go, we're scattering not because of persecution, but I believe we're just as sent as those first followers of Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that empowered them is present with us living in our hearts if, if we've trusted Christ with our lives and able to empower us just like the Holy Spirit empowered anyone who went before us. See, when the Apostle Paul was coaching Timothy, he wrote this, keep, but, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I, I take that phrase, do the work of an evangelist, to be an acknowledgement of Paul saying to Timothy, hey, you don't, you don't have the gift of evangelism, but as a follower of Jesus, you're called to do the work of an evangelist to be prepared to tell the gospel wherever you go. Uh, the Apostle Peter said something similar. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So when I went to meet with Steve and Sally uh, when I was 23 years ago, Again, very little Christian education in my background. I, I, I hadn't been raised in the church, though I had been trained by my local church in how to talk about my faith, how to, how to share my faith, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm firmly convinced that every Christ follower needs at least one simple way, not a canned speech, right, but some preparedness to share what it is that you actually believe with another person. So let me, let me take a stab at that. That's what this thing is for. <clears throat> and if you want to follow along in your sermon note guide there, there's a little page. Um, so if you think about the world today, and we had to describe it, we would probably think very quickly of a lot of stuff that's broken and wrong. I mean, the war in Ukraine, the war in Sudan, the ongoing atrocities in Myanmar, Another mass shooting just last night, right, in Texas. I mean, we would, we see very quickly the brokenness of the world. That stuff is messed up, and it's not just kind of, it's really messed up, right? I mean, I think we all see and sense that. There is brokenness. Oh boy. I don't know how to spell first. There's brokenness in the world. And it's not just out there somewhere, right? You and I both know that the problem is me. 
right? The brokenness is in us. It's in our hearts. And I would argue that we, we, we sense that, we feel it, and we try stuff to try to fix that, be it religion or, you know, vocational success, job, relationships, uh, substances to kind of numb the, the reality of this brokenness, which we, we know. There's this ache, this longing for something different than what is, and we're trying to fix it with all these things. So there's an, there's an ache, and just like hunger points to the existence of food and thirst to the existence of water, our ache, our longing for a different world points, I think, at least, to the possibility of a world that's not broken. And that's what the Bible says God made in the very beginning. That God's design was a perfect world where there's no pain, no mourning, no crying, no death, right? And, and the, the Bible's account of creation is that God made stuff and he said, wow, that's good. God made some more stuff and said, wow, that's good. God made human beings and said, whoa, very good. Very good. So people created very good in the image of God, image bearers, unbroken. And according to the Bible, the way we got from here to here was sin. And all sin is, it's our rebellion against God. It's, it's us choosing to do things our own way instead of living within God's design. So that has us living here in this broken world. And we all know if we could fix this, we would have already fixed it, right? I mean, we keep trying the same stuff over and over again. It does not work. We cannot fix it. We will never fix it. If we could have fixed it, we would have. So it's clear that we need help from somewhere else, somewhere outside of us. And that's what the basic Christian message is about. And we, we call it the gospel. That's just the fancy word. It literally means good news. And the good news is that the help from outside ourselves has been provided by God through Jesus on the cross. I mean, that's the basic message, that on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon him. He became our substitute to fix this, to get us back to here, right? Or at least being restored and renewed to this. So just hearing about this isn't enough. The Bible says that we have, to, we have to do something. We have to acknowledge our need, turn from all these attempts to fix ourselves, and place our trust in what Jesus has done for us. And the words Jesus used for that were repent and believe. Biblically, the word repent means literally to change your mind. It does not mean to simply stop doing the stuff you know is wrong that you're currently doing. It includes that, but it's not, it's not primarily behavioral in, it, in its definition. It, it's talking about changing your mind, ch- changing how you think about what's going on in the world right now and what God is doing in the world, right? A change of thinking. Believe means a transfer of trust. So we're not gonna trust in this stuff anymore We've tried it 10,000 times. We know it's not going to work. We're going to trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's the believe part. And when we do that, the Bible says, we're, we're, 
welcomed into an entirely new and different kind of life. I'm, I'm still John. Jim is still Jim. You know, Mark is still Mark. But there's something new inside. It's, it's a brand new kind of life. And we're freed then um, to recover and pursue God's design for our lives in every area of our life. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lifelong process. It's not like we're made completely fixed in an instant, but we're on a different trajectory now. And then, and then once we go through here, we're also called to you know, enter back into this world and to share this news that a whole different kind of life is possible. I mean, that's the simple gospel, right? So maybe, maybe this thing works for you. Uh, maybe it doesn't, but that's a very simple way to explain what it is that we believe as followers of Jesus. And like I said, just hearing about this is not enough. You need these things. A change of thinking and a transfer of trust. That's what I understand the Bible to be calling us to. Let me scoot this back. And, and then when you, when, you, you know, when you share it this way, or talk about the gospel this way, you can say, look, there's no magic prayer. We simp- what we do, our part is to do the transfer of trust. So it's like the prayer is, God, thank you for sending Jesus. I've tried to fix myself. It doesn't work. I know that I need help from outside of myself. So instead of trying my own way, I'm going to trust you. Please pour out your spirit on me and help me as I walk with you and seek to you know, recover and pursue your design for my life. That's, that's what we do in, internally. The reason the church grew back in the book of Acts, initially, the reason it has grown anywhere, anytime around the world is because followers of Jesus have told the good news of Jesus to their friends and, and, and other people And just as God began to spread the good news of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and through that initial scattering of the church, Jesus continues his work in the world by the Holy Spirit moving through followers of Jesus scattered all around the world who tell the good news wherever they are. So if you're considering faith in Jesus, this is an invitation to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, do your homework, right? And we're happy to help, right? Paul or Sam mentioned that last week. Uh, we'll be doing this on discipleship equipping nights. We can do this in classes. We can do this in one-on-one meetings. Well, we got to do our homework, right? We have to have some way of being able to verbally convey what it is that Jesus has done for us in a clear, kind of understandable way. May the Holy Spirit help us with that and continue his work in the world through his people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that while we were lost, while we were still stuck in our sin, you came to us. It's what Christmas is about. You provided help from outside of ourselves. You came in person to seek our reconciliation with God the Father. You lived a perfect life, you died, you were raised from the dead, you live right now, you pour out your spirit on us and help us to 
to take a step forward with you. Thank you for your goodness. God, I pray right now that if there are those in this room or potentially walking, watching online who haven't made this transfer of change of thinking and, and transfer of trust, please help us in that, God. We know we can't do it, even that part on our own. You en enable us by your spirit to take even those steps. So remove the barriers, God. Silence the chatter of the inner dialogue, the voices of the world and the flesh and the devil that would oppose you. Please speak clearly to us in ways that we can hear. Pour out your spirit on us and help us turn to you and follow you. And thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in Jesus. We love you. And with your church around the world, affirm today that there is no other name than the name of Jesus at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.